Holy fuck, I already love this podcast. So began one Benny Baskett's review of this show, and we're massively grateful for it. Thanks, Benny. You're a star. Is it too late to warn listeners that we're prone to the occasional bit of swearing? It's not big, it's not clever, and it's definitely not suitable for children. But Benny likes it. And this here, what you're listening to now, is the first episode of Season 3, in which we're joined, as always, by some incredible guests to talk about some great records. If you're new to these parts, let me explain what we do. We listen to entire discographies, and then talk about them. The show is formatted around a series of album introductions by a guest curator, and followed by an in-depth discussion that may occasionally spin off in unusual directions. If you follow the link to the Spotify playlist version in the show notes, you can hear the show cut together with a selection of the songs we're talking about. It's far and away my favourite way to listen. You'll find all this together with Seasons 1 and 2 at tempfans.com. Like, subscribe, or shower money on our shiny new Patreon and enrich us beyond our wildest dreams. But not right now, obviously. Now, we have more important business to attend to. Cardiff noise rockers, McCluskey. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms Season 3. Sweet Jesus. Um, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. And um, yeah, we've got, I mean, I was going to use the word humdinger, but that sounds awful. Um, We've got what I think is a great season ahead, and we've got some great episodes. Um, A few bits of admin before we start. Um, There's a Patreon. Yes, there's a Patreon, which hopefully will look better than it does today by the time this episode comes out. Um, you can I'll go cover it for you, you Ewan. <laughs> you can ignore it if you want. You're still going to get these episodes. There's going to be no changes, but there will be some bonus stuff over there. Uh, go and have a look. The links are in the, the places and the things and the whatnots. Um, okay, so the last season ended with a fantastic episode about ESG. We revisited the, the pilot episode and please go and check that out and check all the other episodes. If this is your first one joining us for the first time, um, host of my teenage band podcast, um, Nick Taylor, whose internet is slightly shoddy and hopefully he can hear me. Nick. I can hear you. Yes. Hello. Perfect. Welcome. Um, we'll have a bit more of a chat later, but and we'll put the links to Nick's podcast in the, the doobly-doo. Um, as you can remember, in the, the, the last episode, we were joined by Zoe Van Hess, uh, Sharia Moore, and Christopher Whitby. We then locked up Temporary Fandom's Towers and went home for, for a month, and we're just reopening it now to see what mess we left inside. And Oh my God, Sheree, Chris, you're still here. It's like hey, we're in a way. <laughs> Hello. Squatters. We're squatters we in temporary found residence. Punk yeah. squatters. Hopefully the vending machine hasn't been touched. Um, so Cherie's back. Chris, you're back. You have been on multiple times. And this time we're actually giving you the reins. Who are we going to be talking about today? In this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, McCluskey. So we're going through four. So we've got the first album, uh, My Pain and Sadness is More Sad and Painful Than Yours, which is a very long album title to remember. McCluskey do Dallas, great title. Uh, the difference between me and you is that I'm not on fire. Another mouthful there. And uh, finally, uh, the compilation album, McCluskeyism, which I do quite struggle to say sometimes. So I'm glad I got that in the first go. Perfect. Thank you very much. 
Um, as as an aside, when when we sort of set this up, I genuinely had no idea who McCluskey were, and I have in my head jokingly referred to them as McFly a lot. Well, um, the next voice you're going to hear, listener, will be Chris talking uh, talking you through those albums, and we will all be back in a bit. There are two constants in the history of McCluskey and Future the Left. Firstly, their singer and most well-known member, Andrew Falco Falcus, and the second, a belief from fans that they should be and should have been much bigger. For me, they've been a constant in my life for nearly 20 years, from first hearing McCluskey late night on the radio, to booking tickets recently to see the anniversary shows from McCluskey Do Dallas. McCluskey are a band that longtime friends and I adore, and when I met my wife, one of the first bands I introduced her to was Future The Left, and we've gone on to see them live together many times. When I was in a band at university, Future Left were one of the first gigs we saw together. They are bands I love, bands I tell people about, and bands I fragrantly ripped off when trying to write songs. Across their albums, they are well known for their lyrics, which draw on surrealism, pop culture and everyday observations, and their live show to something to behold. I look forward to hearing what everyone thinks. The story of these two bands started in Cardiff in 1996, when Falcus, along with Matt Harding and Garant Bevan, formed Best. They would record one EP titled Benedict, with Bevan leaving soon after. Falcus and Harding would go on to recruit a new bassist, John Chappell, from local band Myrtle. The three would record one EP, called Who Uno, before in 1999 changing their name to McCluskey, and I'm not entirely sure why the name was chosen. In 2000, the band released their debut album, the brilliantly titled My Pain and Sadness is More Sad and Painful Than Yours. The album had two singles in advance, which are both great, Joy and Rice is Nice and unusually, both songs come in in under 70 seconds. And like everything else from McCluskey and Future Left, this is the only album I didn't hear when it was released, but heard it after discovering them through their second album. It's also the album I've listened to the least over the years, so it was great to revisit it properly recently. I had a really mixed response when I first heard it, as it felt quite raw and abrasive, but I've grown to enjoy the fuzz and noise of it now. Also, having not heard it when it came out, it's hard not to see it through the lens of what would come next, something which I think is unfair. The album does have a lot to like though, and I think that tracks like Rock vs Single Parents and World Cup Drumming give a good indication of the sound that would be integral to the albums that followed. Importantly, it introduced the lyrics and humour that would become associated with the band. Overall, it has a lot of different ideas competing which would be refined on the next album. McCluskey Do Dallas was released in 2002, this was also the year I was introduced to the band via John Peel. I was driving home late one night with my dad listening to his show. Lots of songs passed us by, but then suddenly one started with a faster and faster hi-hat, which exploded into a wall of distortion and shouted vocals. I was gripped. That track was Lightsaber Cock Sucking Blues. Interestingly, I shared this anecdote on Twitter recently when the Do Dallas 20th Anniversary shows were announced. Falcus replied to me and questioned whether this was the night that Peel inadvertently played the song at half speed. I certainly don't remember that, but maybe memory sped up the track. What I do remember is rushing out soon after to buy the album from Scundot's premier music shop, Record Village. I was hooked from the first listen, and now this is one of mine and many other people's favourite albums. I remember a lot of discussion at the time about the fact the album was recorded with Steve Albini at Electrical Audio in Chicago. His production has a real energy to the album, and it really feels like you're hearing it played live. Around the time the album came out, the website rathergood.com was also at its height. The site was an early version of the millions of cartoons and memes all over the internet now. 
Notably, they had a video for Light Say the Cocksucking Blues, where cats with terrifying mouths jumped out the screen as a song played. I recommend seeking it out. There are too many quotable lyrics to mention on this, and I'd struggle to pick a favourite song. All I know is every time I listen to it, I get the same shot of thrill and excitement as the first time I heard it. The album had a massive impact on the way I play guitar and the way I try and write lyrics, although I can't confess to get anywhere near the magic heard on here. There is no way I can overstate how great this album is. For me, it's an undisputed classic. In 2004, McCluskey released their third and final album, again with another brilliant title, The Difference Between Me and You Is That I'm Not On Fire. The album was preceded in 2003 by two singles, There Ain't No Fool in Ferguson and Undress for Success. These are two McCluskey classics, it's unbelievable they didn't make it onto a studio album, but they would turn up later on a compilation. Around the time of the album, Matt Harding left the band and was replaced on drums by Jack Eggleston. Jack, along with Falcus, will remain with us for the rest of our journey as the core of Future of the Left. I first heard this album possibly a week after it came out. A good friend of mine, who was also a massive fan of Dude Dallas, bought the album and we met one Friday night to listen. At the time, I thought the album started really strong and there were some incredible songs such as Without MSG I Am Nothing and She'll Only Bring You Happiness. But my abiding memory from hearing it for the first time is that it felt noisier and more abrasive. There seemed to be a rawness to it and the production, again by Albini, made it sound aggressive rather than live and energetic. I also remember thinking that the final track, Support Systems, went on for ages and was really chaotic. Listening now, I'm not really sure what I was thinking as it seems much more restrained than it did at the time. I can only think that I was so enamoured with Dude Dallas that I was expecting more of the same and that was unfair. The album isn't as immediate as its predecessor but it did introduce some of the tautness and big riffs that would emerge fully with Future of the Left, and it definitely has some of the band's strongest songs. It's a great album, and I've grown to love it. I only saw McCluskey in their original lineup once at Reading Festival. I was also meant to see them in Nottingham, but for some reason I didn't end up going. My friends who did go told me that during the gig, Chapel kicked someone off the stage as they were trying to stage dive. I'm not sure that's a safe thing to do, but it is a good story. The band would split in 2005. Little was said at the time about what happened, but Falcos made a statement on the band's website stating, The reason for this parting is private, though probably not as entertaining as you'd imagine. It later emerged that tensions had arisen between Falcos and Chapel. I was sad to see McCluskey go, but there were great things to come. So the band had split, but we would quickly get a new release. McCluskeyism, released in 2006, was available in two formats, a single best of, and a three-disc special edition which included the best of, B-sides and rarities, and finally a gig recorded live at Ulu in London. As expected from a band of their quality, the best of is incredible and a brilliant overview of their output. The rarities are a mix of demos and B-sides, including classics such as Random Celebrity Insult Generator, with its reference to everyone's favourite TV policeman, Nick Berry. Overall, I think the Ulu gig is the highlight here, which gave a good impression of the ferocity of the McCluskey live experience, including the banter from Falcus that has become legendary. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. We are still dealing with McCluskey. You have been listening to Chris Whitby talking talking you through the albums and still with Nick and myself are Nick Taylor. Hello, Nick. Hello. Uh, Cherie Amore. Hello, Cherie. Hello. And Chris Whitby. Hey, Chris. Hello. Okay, so as I said, I mean, I had no idea who McCluskey were. Um, 
Future of the Left had been on my radar a little bit, which is the what they become in a future episode. Um, I could have loads of excuses, like I was out of the country or something, but I guess they just were not the type of band I was listening to in that sort of period. Um, so what we're talking about Millennium, is that right? About around about when did they when did they start off, Chris? Yeah, I think they kind of became McCluskey '99, maybe, and then the first album. was released in 2000 but i would say they were slightly later than that when they kind of became more of a known band in the kind of wider indie rock scene but yeah 2000s when they started first album and i I kept getting confused because they they kept being referred to as a welsh band yet the lead singer is not welsh am am i going crazy i think he's from newcastle right i think he was born in newcastle moved to then he's in then now they're based in cardiff so he's kind of like Cardiff by association, I suppose, will be the and their longtime res- residential nation. Um, as a precursor to all of this, before we start going around the, the table, um, I try to act, do the thing where you listen to stuff and analyze it, and I found it really hard to analyze anything that we, we're going to be talking about while I was sober and walking to the bar. On my way back from ba- the bar, everything seemed totally different. So. Yeah, it's going to be a tricky one. Um, so, Chris, um, in your intros, you talked about how this was the first band that really did anything for you. It's the band that you uh, spoke to your wife about later on when they become Future of the Left. How did you get into McFly? McFly. How did you get into McFly? <laughs> I, uh, um, I think I said in the intro, I heard them for the first time on John Peel. So they played Lightsaber Cock Sucking Blues on John Peel, which is actually on the next album. So let's not... Uh, you know, let's um, go too much into that one. But I heard them McCluskey do Dallas, basically, and then went backwards to this album. But um, yeah, I was just driving home. Well, I wasn't driving. My dad was driving, to be clear. Uh, but one night, and they um, played Lightsaber to Cocksucking Blues on the radio. And um, yeah, I can still vividly remember it. It's like, I know there's like one of those classic cliches of the first time you hear a band or the first time you hear a song. But I do really vividly remember it and that feeling that, um, you know, rushing out to this shop in Scunthorpe, which thankfully had it, and uh, yeah, I just loved it. I can remember the paper of the booklet that's in it. I can remember like everything about it. And it's just, uh, yeah, they're a band that, yeah, just really grabbed me. I don't know what it is about them. And it's interesting what you say about not analyzing them because they're strangely not a band that I've really analyzed or gone deeper over the years. It's more of a surface, just pure enjoyment. Do you know what I mean? Like they're a band that just make me happy. And yeah, simple as that, really. Okay. I mean, obviously we, we could talk influences till the cows come home and at some point you'll pull out your little book which you have every episode of thing yeah there we go um i mean obviously there's a post-hardcore thing we've had a previous episode about number girl and obviously they were sort of taking post-hardcore to japan um you could i could say pixies i could say fugazi none of it sort of seems to fit perfectly i guess i mean sheree i mean where does this band fit in that scene for you? Are they different from their peers? Are they doing something new? What? I've got a lot of notes about them being different from their peers. Yeah, hundred percent. I've I've <laughs> said basically. I find it mad that they're doing this whole like American post hardcore, and their Welsh peers are stereophonics at this point. And I know <laughs> yeah. that Falcus makes a few <laughs> comments about that, and too right. My goodness, like. I don't want to get onto the the records, you know, that we're going to come on to. But um, yeah, for me, there's like a sound of a revolt going and that comes stronger and stronger throughout the discography. Um, fun fact as well. 
if this is true, Chris, um, Falcus and Matt meeting at Anglian Windows. My brother also works for Anglian Windows and he is a big McCluskey fan. Oh, wow. So yeah. there we yeah. go. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think a friend of mine used to work with Falcus yeah. in admin for a graveyard or oh. something like that as well. Yeah. So it's like wow. a weird admin job wow. in Wales. Yeah, yeah. We'll come to that later. That's uh, back to my anecdote about me. Yeah, yeah Gollum admin job, that lad. Very different from their peers. And also, I think all of these records, even though I guess similarly to Chris, I knew Lightsaber, Cocksucking Blues came in at that point, but they were just sort of in the peripheries for me. I didn't go deep into their catalogue. And oh my word, I'm so delighted that I did. Um, It's very, very up my alley. And it feels like they were there throughout, like myself and Fliss, fellow Temp fans Mm. podcast guest um we were in a band and there were bands on the scene in Norwich that just sound like this band so I kind of mm-hmm. want to message them being like you must have liked McCluskey these underdogs because the whole like quivering <laughs> vocals and the shouts and the yelps it was all there totally yeah um the shouting and the yelping was what it to be honest it took me a while first album I was just like oh it's annoying me a little bit and it did oh, work, did work <laughs> worked its way in somehow into somewhere um, before we go through sort of track by track, um, Nick, I mean, you have a, you have a podcast about teenage bands. Um, would this be the archetypal teenage band for you? I mean, we've discovered while we were planning this, that actually they're older than we think they were, thought they were. And they're sort yeah. of, they're basically the same age as other Nick and myself, which makes us, makes me feel rather old. Um, Nick, how about them for you? I mean, is this the archetypal teenage band for you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there is that sort of, uh, there's a, that real sense of just kind of, freedom and and just abandon that that comes that comes from their music i mean i think that i've been similar i've been similar to you you and i i was i was a little bit familiar with future the left stuff but i had never heard a note of mccluskey music before i started embarking on this uh and um and it has been it's been a really great uh sort of it's been a really great experience but also a really great cathartic experience i've spent i have to admit i spent I do intend to spend all of this week really diving into their stuff, uh, and then um, and then I got uh, noticed that I had to do a job interview um, at the at the very end of this week that required me to spend uh, an entire week listening to nothing but but classical music uh, for my work. So I've so I've just been uh, so I so I spent five solid days listening to uh, you know string quartets and 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 opera and then uh, and and then as soon as that interview was finished i immediately dived into uh my pain and sadness is more sad and pain and painful than yours so uh that's been a nice little that's been a nice little contrast for me uh and then yeah and then the weekend has just got more shoutier and shoutier as uh, as things have progressed um but uh so I just uh, in terms of you know for the people that i've been speaking to for my uh my podcast like they're I think the unifying theme has just been this kind of, you know, this complete freedom to just uh, just go along with a meld of a bunch as, as many different styles as possible, and just kind of uh, and uh, and this sort of yeah, this sort of like no, this lack of conscious consciousness in terms of in terms of when they're creating something, and I think that really shines through in all of McCluskey's stuff. You know, all of these songs that are. The amount of songs they've got that are just sort of that are under two minutes and just sort of, and there's and there's so much in each in each one um and uh yeah that's it's been really it's been really great yeah we've talked before on this on the pod about uh good albums uh having 
two minute, 35 second songs or, or 10 songs in a half an hour. And how, apart from when Chris loves Long Can, which is I'm never going to let him forget about, uh, the short albums are the ones that for some of us, particularly with, of this style, it's great. It's like, yeah. oh, 10 minutes, done. I can have a cup of tea and it's, I, it's still not on 45 minutes. Um, track wise, I mean, God, there's so many long titles. What, White Liberal and White Liberal Action sort of stood out for me. And weirdly, Fly Smoke, although it didn't sound like the rest of the album. But I, maybe it stood out because it didn't sound like the rest of the album. I noticed with Fly Smoke recently that I'm not sure this would go down well, but it really sounds like Idlewild. And I've never noticed that before. It sounds exactly like Idlewild. <laughs> uh, but let's keep that to ourselves, maybe, actually. Um, Nick, um, how? I mean, obviously, I mean, this is what we do on the podcast we, we go through these things um how familiar were you with mccluskey before we did it on the facebook group back in the day or you did it on the facebook group back in the day um that's this nick right me um yeah, so we were nick and nick t <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I, I i it seems to be a, a common theme here basically i didn't really know them until future of the left um and i first became aware of them because of a friend of mine saying that they're playing this gig come and see them i think you'll like them and I did, but weirdly, so that was, that was to be about 2012, 2013. And for one reason or another, I still didn't actually go and explore their records after that, even though I, it was a great gig. So it wasn't until 2018 when we listened to them in the group that I actually went back and listened to McCluskey and all of Future of the Left. Um, and it's one of the things I find strange about them is because I really enjoy them when I'm listening to, but they're one of those bands I sort of then somehow forget about and don't listen to again until I've got a very specific reason to, like doing this. And I don't know why that is, because they're great. <laughs> I mean, def- there's definitely the sort of there's sort of a punch and a, there's a raw energy that comes in, and obviously lyrically, which we'll talk about a bit more in a bit, things stand out. But there were some I'd listen to it and go, oh yeah, I enjoyed that. And I couldn't remember a single track. I just remember that I enjoyed that 35 minutes, but I couldn't rem- I couldn't have placed a single track or a single lyric until I went back and had to listen to them a, a couple more times. Um, anybody, Cherie, what are your standouts on this one? I mean, it's a bit of a mismatch of an album, but. It is, and you'll be unsurprised to know that I'm leaning heavily towards the riff section. So <laughs> I I heard, because I, well, I'm going to make a huge omission now. I've not really listened to Fugazi before, so um, I didn't know that reference. For me, it was like pure, simple incesticide Nirvana, and that's like such a great mm. record for me. Yeah. So I was very happy to hear that. Mm. So but I thought both singles were awesome. I know that's a very predictable answer, but I am a fan of a short, sharp, riff-heavy track um so joy huge joy for me um the riff in rock versus single parents as well it's massive it's massive it's so good um yeah so i'd say those guys yeah just had like um rice is nice has that sort of like um sliver um going to grandma's that kind of chorus for me felt, felt so similar mm-hmm. yeah totally totally um yeah I th- interesting about the nirvana thing because I didn't hear it the first time. And then when I, particularly when, and we'll talk about McCluskeyism later, when I was hearing tracks again, that's when I sort of noticed it a little bit more. Um, okay, so, I mean, that was the first album. It, it was a calling card. I mean, it was, it was a bit of mismatch. It wasn't, it wasn't the stereophonics. But going into the post-millennium, um, the music scene in the UK was very, it was looking, it was looking stateside quite a lot. Everybody wanted to the white stripes or the strokes or, or or whomever which may be why they sort of slipped me by but then they seem to go 
McCluskey does Dallas. Sorry, McCluskey do Dallas, um, <laughs> which was what, 2002, Chris? Yeah, 2002, exactly. And they've got Steve Albini in. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know much about how that happened, but I think it's simply they weren't approached or anything like that. I think it's a case of they just saved up and they decided they wanted to work with Steve Albini. Simple as that. I think they just went out to Chicago and recorded it with him. Yeah, it's quite a... It's a, and it's a match made in heaven, in my opinion, as well. Mm-hmm. How, how much do you have to save to get Steve, Steve Albini? Is it sort of like you just put some money in a pot and occasionally you go, oh, it's the Albini fund. I mean, how does that work? It's just when you get a bit of shrapnel. You know, you've got 50p left from the shopping, you stick it in a fund, and then eventually oh, that's enough to fight Chicago. The, the, the Albini jar. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how, how full's your I've Albini got... jar, Chris? Uh, I mean, I've probably got two, uh, two tracks. Yeah. Maybe a seven-inch. Okay. I haven't got an album yet. Yeah. 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 I have an EP by the end of the year. I've got one of those Blue Peter things in my head now, like where they're sort of, they've got the giant target and every week they'd go back on Blue Peter and they go, oh, we're 30% towards Albini. Um, <laughs> 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 um, okay, yeah. so we've got McCluskey do Dallas. Um, I mean, this is louder, it's it's ruder, it's tighter. Um, there's a thing for me that they sort of do through a few albums with, which is sort of a repetitive slow riff and then sing, and then come back to the same riff, and then sing like the riff sort of never ended. Um, I think Day of the Dead Ringers was a high, was one of those that sort of does that. Um, before I hand it over, his voice was bugging me, and I didn't know why. And I could hear the John Lydon, and I could hear the Black Francis, and all of the references. And, the, and I, there was one that I couldn't place, and I and it was Young Knives. If anyone yeah. knows Young Knives, <laughs> young knives. <laughs> wow, yeah. And he's sort of screaming, that decision was mine! Like, like over and over. And I, exactly. And the second I realized, it was like this math, massive cathartic moment. All the energy was, I was like, there it was. That's who it, like, that's who it reminds me of. Um, okay, so obviously you've talked before, and we're going to go straight back to um, Chris. When you heard Lightsaber Cock Sucking Blues in the car, how did your dad re- respond? Uh, I think he might have just pretended it wasn't happening. You know, your dad kind of goes, oh, we've got to turn off for like Reading now or something. I can't listen to this anymore. Do you know what I mean? Just ignored it. Oh, <laughs> oh Leeds have just scored a goal. Um, yeah, let me just tune into Radio Sorry 5. Sorry about Yeah, your mum's your wrong. Sorry, I'm going to deal with that. Or did he, did he not just say, wait wait a minute, this is this is, um, this is is a bottle surfers. Uh, Lee, Lee Harvey sleep. No, hang on. The Shah sleeps in Lee Harvey's grave. Can you edit that so it makes sense, Ewan? <laughs> I don't think it's possible. Do you want to try again? <laughs> I can do another take at it. Sure, sure. Go for it. Go for it. I was, I was just me trying to channel Chris's dad and I got confused. Um, okay, so Nick, obviously I'll edit this out. I won't edit this out. Nick, yeah, do you want another go at that? <laughs> butthole surfers. You were going to say it reminded you of a butthole surfers. Yeah, but well, basically, uh, it's just they've both got long, complicated titles, so I'm struggling to say it all. Basically, lightsaber cocksucking blues is The Shah Sleeps in Lee Harvey's Grave by The Butthole Surfers. I did it! Yay! Wow, I, I've, never, I've never heard you say that before, Nick. That's a really interesting observation. Really, yeah, really great one. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Wake me up when um, we get on to the next album. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just, you just go to sleep. Um, okay, so we've got what? We've got To Hell With Good Intentions, Lightsaber, Coxic and Blues, Fuck Lee's Band were the ones that sort of really stood out for me. I mean, this was just a really good, fun tight ball to the floor riff album right i mean lyrically there's a lot of sneers and a lot of targets um nick t 
Um, what do you think in terms of progression was going on here? I mean, obviously they've got the Albini fund to pay for something, but is that all that changed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you said, really, it's all just it's all just much tighter and and slicker, I think. Uh, and I mean, I think by the time you by the time you get to this album, I I I do feel like with things like To Hell with Good Intentions and stuff, they re- they really are thinking about not not things that are going to be sort of radio friendly and kind of push through to the push through to the mainstream but they they clearly are thinking about what's going to work as they're, they're really mastering that thing that 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 Falcus does so well in, in in all in all of his work which is just that perfect uh that perfect melding of just the really loud screaming stuff and, and something with a real uh pop sensibility that just makes it so irresistible I think um and I mean, I wonder because I know that I know that McCluskey do Dallas is it was sort of considered. It is. Am I right, Chris, in thinking that it is kind of considered their their best album? Was it their most kind of critically acclaimed album? But how did it do kind of commercially? Did it did it did it shift much or get much sort of in the way of kind of right, mainstream radio play? I'm not sure about how much like radio play, but it's definitely the one that's kind of considered, yeah, the go-to, they're like, um, not landmark, not a very nice phrase, but you know, like they're kind of, that's the album. If you can listen to one of McCluskey, it's that one. And I'd even say probably across all of his back catalogue, that Falcus's back catalogue, that would be the one. Yeah, definitely. Whether it did well in the, you know, in a commercial sense, I don't know, but I think that that's kind of something that's plagued them throughout, I think, is the sense that you've got this real, like rabid, like cult following and people that really think it's like the greatest, you know, this one of the greatest albums of all time, but it always just sits at a certain level. And there's a few bands around that time, I think, that have that. But I don't think it was, I don't think the lack of commercial acclaim is what ended them, but I don't think it was really no, of course. pushing, wasn't really pushing them higher either. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's interesting with something like, with, with let's have a cocksucking beliefs, so like, you know, with, this is around the time, when, if you think about, bands bands like the white stripes first emerging with that when they first came out with that really raw um mix of of garage rock and and blues that a track like that i can imagine a track like that actually fitting really well onto their first album actually um so it, it they it almost sounds like on this album they are they they almost are kind of fitting into that to that kind of indie, to to that side of the indie explosion of the early noughties. so it's almost a surprise that it that it didn't do uh, that it it didn't do as well as it did. But what was was the scene at that time? And we talked a bit how they were looking westwards. Who were the indie peers uh, and the at, 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 in the sort of two thousand and twos, Chris? Yeah, because I think that's interesting. Because for me, that that. I'm not sure you'd say they were in that scene, but I the bands I kind of associate them with are other bands I was really into at the time, like Ruben, Million Dead, Hell mm. is for Heroes, that kind of, even Biffy Clyro. Like, I don't think they're the same, but the level they were at yeah. at that time of that kind of British take on a very American sound. Like, I think McCluskey are very different, as um, Cherie was saying earlier. I think they're very different to what they're, the people they're around. But I think... For me, their major contemporary would be someone like Ruben, that kind of band that's just doing massive sing-along choruses, but not it's just got an edge to it, which means it doesn't ever quite go over into the kind of broader thing. And you try a song to try and break over, like, again, Ruben did it, but you never quite get there. And I don't know what was holding them back. Both bands, something just doesn't really mesh. Um, Cherie, 
I'm going to ask you, ask you a question. I mean, we, we've just been talking about how obviously um, there's huge American influences, but they've, they've they've taken those influences across the Atlantic and, and created a a British version, a British sound of that. Do as somebody who was in a band who had various influences that were transatlantic as well. Do you think it's a conscious decision to to anglicize it? Um, or to try and do something different from just sounding like a, a, a clone? Or do you think it just sort of seeps in? That's a good question. Well, without bigging up my band too much, I do think that Fliss and I had a similar approach to Falcus. When you were talking previously, you and about like the sneers and the asides, we used to call our genre gossip rock because we would just write all these observational <laughs> songs about people that we hated. And um, I think there's that vibe in that. And it was funny with Nick T talking about having that sort of quite commercial sound of the guitars um, and kind of white stripe garage rock. But his lyrics that Falcus is saying is just, you mm. know, tearing it apart. Mm. I love college and rock. It was my absolute favorite. Yeah. I think the riff is so like needly and pointed. And the line about one of those bands got paid that night, I felt that in my core. And I was like looking around, <laughs> you know, seeing who's got the good gear, who's got like a bigger paycheck than we did or whatever, you know. I just, I really, really related to that hard, like tight budgets, expensive fuel, being on the road as a DIY band. So even though they might sound like they've stepped up production wise, I think there's still some of that sort of droll, acerbic you know, <laughs> angst mm -hmm. that he's nestled in there. And that's probably a British thing. That's probably mm. that spin is exactly that, you know, keeping those hardcore roots, but having that sort of sly aside to say like, this is what's going on here. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I mean, could you imagine uh, any sort of, any American post-hardcore band uh, with riffs, but then, and you know, just as easy it could, could expect them to have a track about the local celebrity opening the Christmas lights being a bit of a dick one Saturday. You know, you, it wouldn't be out of place in this context, but it would have been out of place. You wouldn't imagine Rollins doing that back in the day. I mean, he should have done. He so should have done. I must admit, the one time I saw the Rollins band, I saw the Rollins band in about, I don't know, I think it was 1998. And I remember all I was thinking at the time was like, you're so angry, just tell us a joke. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do his spoken word thing as well and knew he could be quite droll. It just didn't, didn't mesh for me. I just wanted him to, you know, chill out a bit, tell us a few gags. Maybe it's just yeah. me. <laughs> I mean, he's, he had his droll side, did Rollins. But also, he's incredibly small. Like, he's really short. Really? Um, I think it was about right 90... Here. I think, oh, fine. I think it was about 90, I don't know, 91, 92. I, he was playing in Wolverhampton and I was coming out of work. I was, what, 18? And suddenly this really short guy walks past me. And by really short, I mean up to my like my nipples, you know. I mean, I, was, I looked <laughs> down at him and I was like, oh my God, it's Rollins. And, <laughs> and I was like, Jesus. And I was, yeah, I mean, Rollins is short. I mean, people know that, right? I mean, you know, that's probably why he's got stuff that he's insecure about anyway <laughs> that's why he's I so angry going with that tom, tom york Chris. also um also quite surprisingly modest in height i think the interesting thing about the lyrics and going back to the british thing is there's a kind of way that he uses that goes pop cultural references which in the wrong hands could be horrendous like really really don't work but if you think about on the first album, you've got reference to like French and Saunders. And on this one, you've got a reference to like Danny Baker. And there's something about it which is like so universal that um, the people they were, you know, they're, they're playing to will know those people were. But there's a knowingness that's kind of 
just funny about it. I don't know. There's, there's just it's very particular in his references, which makes it sound very like simple. But you couldn't like I don't know if you had Prue Leith rather than Danny Baker, yeah. it wouldn't work. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? It's like there's something about Danny Baker that works, and there's something about French and Saunders that just is really funny. And I, I don't know what it is. What about um, is it Idols where it's like Mary Berry's got a you know Tarquin's got a. a... I'm not gonna. It's, just, mm. it's a, a a more up uh, up to date reference, but using mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of true yeah, vibe. I can't. I can't. I can't argue with that, Sheree. <laughs> I know. I'm not the were, you don't have to. Um, while we were recording this, um, as you know, there's a Facebook group, and in the Facebook group at the moment, we were doing half man, half biscuit. Um, and so my entire last two weeks has been um, somebody going, and I ate shoes to some to uh, to screaming, sarcastic, bitter to Liverpudlian folk, bitter. I mean, I, there's been a lot of sarcasm <laughs> in my music over the past two weeks, and I'm not sure that mentally I'm coming out of this. I don't. Um, well, I don't find half man half biscuit bitter though. I mean, it's caustic, but it's not bitter. Yeah, but there's a fine line between caustic and bitter, particularly when that's all you're listening to for two weeks. <laughs> True. Well, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I've been doing exactly the same thing. I've been listening to those two, yeah, McCluskey, Future of the Left, and Half Man, Half Biscuit back to back for for two weeks now. And and it wasn't something I thought about before we started, but yes, there is a there's a quite a lot of crossover in uh, in the approach to writing songs, which is quite an interesting thing because it's obviously again very uh, seems to be quite a British thing that. Um, Taking swipes at celebrities and things, and uh, but what I, what I really like um, on McCluskey Do Dallas, uh, I think that's one we're still on. <laughs> is, um, yeah, but, <laughs> but the, as a band, the, on the one hand, you got this sense of them never taking themselves too seriously, and yet at the other time, there's this sort of palpable real anger that you know is rooted in real experience. You know, it's about the frustration of working in shitty jobs and you know having kind of. Um, like lacks of opportunities to do things you want, you want to do. And that, that sort of sense, I you know, that... I think that's key, but I, I worry and we'll probably touch upon it in the next episode a bit. When you have bands, for example, whose first album is about how hard their life is or, or, or growing up on the streets or, or, or their real life experiences, usually by the fourth album, they've got a gospel choir in and they're singing songs about going out, going for a record company lunch because they've, because their references have changed. And it's yeah. going to be interesting to see whether or not they can keep this authenticity and anger going or whether it starts to become fake well, or whether things change. I don't think they were ever massively successful. So, you know, on the on the positive side of that, it means that you don't get that. that they, uh, you know. Still not successful. Ah! This is also the first album I ever heard someone drop the C-bomb on. Love as well. that line. I don't think, I think that's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, have never... Dropping the seat, um, what is it? All of your friends are cunt, your uh, mother is a ballpoint pen thief. Pen thief, correct. (laughs) (laughs) And sorry to my mother for just dropping that word on here as well. And she's not a ballpoint pen thief either. Yeah, she's not. So we're going to move on to, this was like when we did Yolo Tengo and I kept screwing up the album titles. And the difference between me and you is that I'm not on fire in 2004, um, which sounds like, a return to the first album a little bit in terms of sound, right? I mean, uh, for me anyway, they seem to be going somewhere or a, a certain direction with Do Dallas. And then this one sort of seems to go back a little bit, strips out or musically. Um, 
Do you think there was a conscious choice in that? Am I wrong? I'm often wrong. Uh, I'm going to start with Nick T for this one, just because you're, you're sitting in the bottom right. Um, where, where does this album sit for you? I mean, do you, is there a change? Yeah, I think there is a change. And I think, I mean, I, I, I really, um, I know, I know that Dallas is sort of, is sort of the one, but I think there's lots and lots of really love on, on, on this album as well. And I, but, and I think part of it is kind of the more, uh, the, the, the perhaps slightly gentler moments that, that are perhaps a bit more reminiscent of the first album. I mean, think, things like She Will Only Bring You Happiness, which is just a really nice, uh, a really nice sort of like laid back, uh, laid back fuzzy, uh, fuzzy, rock, fuzzy rock pop song. Um, and, but I mean, I understand that. So is there, was this, this was, this was an album that they basically really struggled through to, to make am i am i right am i right in saying that yeah, yeah. i think it was it was tumultuous would be yeah. the word, i think is this the one because i was reading the i was reading some of um falco's uh talk house pieces and i think this is the one that he refers to where he's actually got a he, he's he's got to, he's, he's in chicago and he's actually got to he's got to call uh he's got to call his, the the record company and basically say there's no there's there's no album there's, we are, we're we're done. We oh, we wow. yeah. Um, we've we've spent we you you spent you know thousands and thousands of dollars on us, but we've got we've 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 got nothing. And it wasn't until that in it wasn't until they actually came back. I I, I hope I'm getting this right. It wasn't actually until they came back to the UK and got and got the and got the new drummer that they actually finally managed to finish finish this album. But it nearly it nearly broke the right. band basically. Um and I think that's it, it did break the band, didn't it? Yeah. Well, essentially, it did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, while Nick was talking about the the idea of ringing the, the record company and going, "We've got nothing," Cherie's face was horrified by the concept, and I'm thinking of having to have that conversation. <laughs> Is that right, Cherie? Uh, no, I just found that fascinating. I think there must have been so much mm. much expectation after Do Dallas, and I can feel mm. that it's like mm. that you know, coined phrase in every review of like you know, the jaded second album syndrome. And I know they had, a, you know, this was actually the third, mm. but I think because maybe do Dallas put that on people's maps and radars that this kind of, they had that expectation. Um, I had some fun trivia in context setting actually, when I was reading about this record, uh, cause I did get really deep into the idea of the early aughts and me being at six form and what this meant for them and Falcus and, um, elsewhere in music, so Muse are headlining Glastonbury, The Darkness are headlining Reading and Leeds. So this is giving you an idea of the other bands that are inverted commas successful at the moment. And there's an amazing quote um, from the Enemies editor at the time, Connor Mc uh, Nicholas, who admits he was reserving mag space for bands with good shoes and good hair. <laughs> yeah. Falcus doesn't really have hair, so... Yeah, I just, I, I just can't process so this that. So this would have been when the Libertines were coming through as well, right? So that would probably fit the same thought. Okay, I can sort of see how a music press at the time who was slavering over the next um, Pete Doherty um, would ignore yeah. a, a post-hardcore band from, from, from South Wales. Um, Chris, I mean, where, where does this sit for you in terms of their albums? I mean... For me, it's their it was it's their weakest one, but that's just me. I don't know anything. It is um, just you. About, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to put that fan. out there. 
<laughs> I yeah, I'd probably I wouldn't weakest is a that's quite a, a take that one, but I would say that I kind of see this one, the first one, kind of just on par really. They're both so different to do Dallas. But I I don't know. Do I see them as maybe it's my second favourite. I'm gonna mm. go, I'm gonna put something out there. I think it's a mm. it's got just got so many great songs on it. And it's just I think it's major fall is the that came after Do Dallas. If yeah. this was the album, this had come first, it would have, I think it would, you know, it would be as highly regarded, particularly because there's so many memorable lyrics, there's so much going on. It just struggles because after Do Dallas, and I don't think anyone wants to come after Do Dallas, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, that's its major problem. I think it's a great album, but I do realise that when I first heard it, I don't think I liked it as much because... I was expecting Do Dallas, which I think mm. isn't really. It's just you wouldn't want it again. Do you know what I mean the album is perfect? Why would you want another version of it? So I'm going to go with joint second of three. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, oh well, can I can I come out there and say that this is this is my favorite McCluskey album? Mm. Um, and I, but I think I think part of it is down to the fact that when I first listened through to the albums, I went into McCluskey Do Dallas with that pressure of expectation. Which never really works well for me. I went in with mm. the kind of like, you know, come on, Deb, uh, Debbie do Dallas, McCluskey do Dallas. God damn it, these titles! I can't say them. Um, <laughs> I went into McCluskey do Dallas thinking, come on, impress me, and and I did like it, but I didn't have that pressure when I listened to the difference between you and me is that I'm not on fire. I can do that one, and um, but but I don't know. I just enjoyed it a lot more. It's um, I think it's a, it's a slightly darker album. Um, it's got a sort of slightly claustrophobic feel to it. It's sort of weird tension, but but I really like it. And again, so many great lyrics that just cover. I mean, this is true of all the albums, to be honest. And it's one of the things I love in Baz, where there's just like every time you listen, you're just hearing little lines that please you because they, they jump out at you. And and um, I think this goes back to what Ewan was saying earlier about listening to the albums and then not remembering the songs individually. I think part of the problem there is that sometimes in in the, each two minute song. There's usually about three or four songs happening. The, the go off and does little different refrains here and there, and so it's hard to actually remember what happens where. You just got all these fizzing ideas all over the place, and that that seems to happen throughout uh, McCluskey and uh, Future of the Left, I think. But anyway, my point is, this is my favourite. But I think that's a good point there about like <laughs> the multiple things in one songs. Like they're a very different band, but if anyone knows the band um, Joyce Manor. I think, they've got, um, called, I think it's called Never Hung Over Again, They're like yeah, a yeah. contemporary pop punk band. But you've got 20 minutes, I think it's 19 minutes, the whole album, actually. But there must be about three hours worth of songs in there. Do you know what I mean? Like, some songs yeah. are a minute long and have four melodies, four, four choruses. But again, like you say, it's, it becomes it's like it's quite overwhelming at some points because it's yeah. like there's so many quotable things, there's so many things to remember. But yeah, well, there's going to a little refrain a... as an aside that you think would make a great chorus for a whole song. Yeah. And it'll just be like a little, it almost uses a gag. Musical refrains as gags in uh, punk post-hardcore. I mean, this is... This, this is something that you don't really expect, is it? Um, Here's a question for you. In the song, She Will Only Bring You Happiness, the first line, is it, note to self, be a wreck by half past ten, or, note to self, be a wrecked by half past ten? <laughs> Either. I thought it was a wrecked, because there's quite a lot of hardened cocks in the, the whole discography, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both uh, sort of... I, I mean, I'm not going to use that as the trailer, but I'd love to use that as the trailer. <laughs> And um, similarly, everywhere he looks, is there the band The Darkness 
Ooh. or everywhere he looks uh-huh. is there sadness and misery as well. Ooh. Yeah, because I, for a long time, thought it was the the band the darkness yeah. but then i listened to it a bit more yeah, yeah. and then when i listened to the, the whole thing i'm thinking i think it might be this kind of sadness i think he probably wanted yeah. both that would be very probably focused yeah. on it the, the... and i feel those two things are quite complicit yeah as well yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That. so that's so funny but that that's like um, a typical falcus lyric though is it because on the one hand it's just a flippant dig at, at celebrities and on the other it's sort of something existential and uh, dark Totally. Um, so, before we even move on to the next one, this is where shit goes wrong, right, Chris? I mean, the split. When what happens? I mean, you was it was it like Pete Doherty stealing all of the rest of the Libertine stuff and for for smack? It was something I mean, like that, though, wasn't it? It's close. Yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know a great deal about close, it. Time, yeah. But I, yeah, I think there was obviously him, Falcus, and Chapel. I think fell out. There was a well bad blood between them it seems to be as well you're left with a band that's got three members and the next band's got two of them in so you're assuming that third one is the yeah the unpopular one but i also read somewhere i'm not sure how true it is that there's events that happened to them in america where they lost loads of gear as well loads of gear was stolen and that supposedly was the beginning of this kind of tension but i don't actually know i don't know if nick t or sheree you know anymore but it seems to be there's like snippets of it that you get mm-hmm. from different interviews or wikipedia yeah, none of it you're entirely convinced or sure it's that but there was this event near the end where they were in america he talked about on the podcast actually which um glenn from the number girl podcast um episode recommended to me where um they're in america they had loads of gear stolen from a van but the gear was all rented so they had to pay the debt back on all this for years they're in arizona somewhere so and then i read somewhere linking that event as being what then started this acrimony but i don't know that's all i know is they don't seem to get on it is what the answer seems to be yeah okay right all of that could be a soap opera i've created as well so if i've just created the greatest indie soap opera then (laughs) tm back to me and i'll keep writing i'm sort of getting flashbacks to the fall episodes where almost every fall episode there seemed to be somebody talking about how they fell out on tour in america um there seems to be go to america and, it, and it, you either break America or it breaks you. Um, mm. Okay, so we went through that one. They've, they've sort of broken up. Um, and then we've got what I am going to say right at the point is one for the purists, but I did listen to the three, the three album singles, B-sides, C-sides, rarities, and live, thanks, Chris, McCluskeyism. Um Why did I listen to that, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to raise this. Yeah, it's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because there's a lot to get through there, uh, which so apologies to all of you. You're all warriors. Um, but it does make you think about those kind of compilation albums. Some bands are better than others. Some bands go for maybe a stripped back B-side, so you go purist about it. So it's just, it made me start thinking about that. Do you, is this the approach to go for where I can't imagine there's much more than what's on these three discs? So again, I don't know. I think it's great. There is some... There's some um, one-timers in there. You probably listen to it once and never again. But I think there's a lot of strong stuff in there, is my feeling. I know it's long, but I think there's at least an, another great album in there if you were to club it all together, is my feeling. Well, well, so, so we've got we've got the sing the, fir- the first disc is, let's see if I remember this correctly, the singles, more or less. And then we've got sort of B-sides. And then we've got live and 
rarities or by rarities i I did write the word but color march is garbage on my piece of paper <laughs> it is it's fucking garbage but but uh, it's I, I mean as I, I, what you were saying about how they approach a compilation is interesting um you can have a best of that is here's 12 tracks some singles plus some album tracks or you can have here's a bunch of here's all our b-sides carter usm usm used to do that all the time here's our b-sides or here's a live album um, all three is not one I've seen before. Well, you know, they always kicked against the convention, mate. That's what it is. You know what I mean? Um, I'm interested, I'm interested to ask other people who are probably listening through or probably getting into going through McCluskey as a first or second, uh, time. Um, for me, this album feels like the album you want, if you really know McCluskey and it's a perfect album to really dive in and go, that's amazing. I know all these little things. For somebody who was coming through on the first or second listen, um, I've got Nick T here. I mean, McCluskeyism, I mean, how does that fit for someone who's not already a massive fan, do you think? Mm, yeah, I mean, I can't quite believe it's it, the album's actually finished in my house. I'm pretty, I feel like it's still going some, somewhere. <laughs> uh, it's, um, but uh, no, I mean... <laughs> I, I that's that's not necessarily a comment on 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 the quality of it. I did I did I did enjoy uh, I did enjoy a lot more of it than I than I was expecting to. Even though yes, uh, as as someone who's as someone who's coming for, uh, coming approaching this not as a full fan, uh, the 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 idea of uh, the idea of over two and a half hours worth of uh, sort of offcuts and rarities didn't uh, didn't didn't hugely excite me. But I think but. Um, but but you know there are there are some things and first of all um, like you mentioned on the slap Chris I mean clearly uh, this is a band that uh, that really uh, that are just absolutely on a whole different level live uh, and um, so that and so we we go some way to getting a little uh, a little insight uh, into this the the live tracks are just so raw and exciting um, and. Um, uh, and it also just made me just miss the concept of a B-side, though, in general, because like B-sides don't really exist anymore, do they? The, that's we 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 get we get artists like um, we get artists like Drake like knocking out uh, knocking out a new sort of mixtape um, every every other every other week, um, and it seems so. We still have this idea of artists just sort of unloading uh whatever they've got kind of down like down the back of the sofa and, and and putting it up on spotify but this this idea of these being like some special tracks that you'll only hear if you really dive into the the singles is sort of, it's kind of a, a a lost art isn't it absolutely i mean some some of my favorite bands particularly you know not as a 90s kid an early 90s kid there were songs that were non album non album singles which sounds bizarre even as a concept and then non-album singles with b-sides and that b-side was gorgeous and sometimes some of the great some of the greatest stuff by some bands that i hold dear is that b-side of that non-album 12 inch in between their second and third album i mean there's also the sort of slightly pretentious muso in me that that likes to pretend that that's the case as well um yeah. sheree um mccluskeyism 
over overwrought and, and too baggy or an essential dive into a band's canon? Ooh. There's only two options. Yeah, I do like that. <laughs> very binary. Um, I think it's interesting what you were just saying there about being a 90s nerd, loving a B-side rarities. I think that's sort of the essence of it, isn't it? That like, it's almost a reward. Like if you are, it's what we said with the SG as well. It's that very sort of stalwart, I love this band. They've got this real, you know, sort of strong underground support system that's going to come and help them release a few more records in the future. And I guess that's what they were giving them because this is in the wake of them uh, breaking. So for me, if I had, you know, if I'd been in that time going through that breakup with Falcus, I would be all over this, you know, you'd be pouring over it. So, and I'm with Nick T in the live section because I never saw them live. I want to see them live now. When he rips that guy for shouting at the drummer, I, I <laughs> yeah. as someone who was in control of the mic, I loved it. Loved, loved, loved. Was that the, t- was that the one with the tool t-shirt? Is that the, the story? He's the one that yeah, makes comment about the drummer. Why does your drummer play? Um, and then he's just like, you're the only one that's paid for a ticket. Everyone else here is on the guest list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Schooled. I think um, the other interesting thing about it is, is that the... A side one has there ain't no falling Ferguson and address for success on I it, which are that track. I mean, they might be two of the greatest non-album tracks ever yeah. written by any band. If I'm going to use polemic yep. tonight, uh, but also I think <laughs> that what I noticed more because I hadn't actually listened to it a lot since it came out. I listened to it bits and bobs over the year, but because there's so much going on, and my friend did criticise it for this. There's so many different styles, but there are a few styles on it which didn't really come into McCluskey, but you can hear in Future mm-hmm. the Left like. Yeah. The kind of spoken word on Dave Stop Killing Prostitutes, uh, provincial songs, got this weird kind of like, um, almost like, not hip-hop's not the right word, but a weird kind of odd rhythm to it, which they definitely would do again later. And I think one of the songs actually has a section that's in a future left song. I think it's mm. um, uh, Viva. I think Viva, the bit, it's like the wave, wave, wave bit, which comes out later, is exactly the same huh. bit. So there's kind of these experiments which you would see later, I think is what's interesting about it when you when you go back to it. I and mean, there is, as someone said, there is some honkers on it, you know, but you'd expect that, wouldn't you? But I think there are, and I also think one that's worth mentioning is, um, I think it's Balbo's song. Because really right. in the Falco history, you don't really get tenderness. It's not a word you would associate with him. But I would say <laughs> Balbo's song is the nearest you get to that. It's got that lyric about, I think it's something like, um, your head's too close to the window and it's really poignant. And, I just think that's a really great song. And it's a side that you arguably don't hear very much mm. again. So there's these moments of him experimenting with different things. I, I do think, I mean, obviously I listened to it digitally. And if, as Cherie said, if I'd gone through this breakup and gone through this band and felt probably ownership as fans do, particularly of bands that are not successful, they're your band, you love them. You'd, you, you'd, you'd want this on vinyl, Right. This is not something mm. you want to go, oh, look, Spotify has these, oh, it's three discs. Oh, okay. Um, no, you want this on vinyl. This is the one you still, this is the one you keep. This is the one you go, look what I got. And then you bore your friends by playing the live tracks five times and they go, yeah, I get it. You really like McCluskey. Yeah, it's a really nice box. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think another thing I noticed, listen to the B-sides, and it's been alluded to earlier, and I can't believe I never noticed it, is, I'm going to get shot down for this. I don't think at the time I realized just how much some of it sounds like the Pixies. I just yeah. didn't notice it mm. at the time. But, yeah. you know, it's like, I think it's med- medium is the message um, wrote on this. Sounds exactly like the Pixies. But I don't know if it was 
I think someone else said this in a previous podcast, pixies are a band to me that I think, well, they're nice. You know, my friends like them, yeah. but I've never There's gone like girl. full deep on it. So again, I think I had a distance where I didn't make that association mm-hmm. because they weren't beloved to me. But yeah, they're definitely ripping off pixies a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite fun. impressed we got this far into the podcast before anyone mentioned the fact that they sound like the pixies. I was playing a game with myself. Mm. I was trying to not mention it. So it went up <laughs> Well, that is probably a perfect time to wrap up this episode on McCluskey. Um, We're not leaving the story there. We are going to be coming back next week and seeing what happens uh, moving forward with Future of the Left. Um, Chris, thank you ever so much for uh, your curation. I hate the word curation. Your introductions. It's all right. I work in a museum. It's fine you can use curation it's fine oh perfect thank you ever so much for your curation of these curated things um sheree fantastic having you back a delight as always um nick t not nick h nick t (laughs) thank you Um, so much for having me um nick we'll we'll see them all later though see you next time bye (laughs) (laughs) we really need to nail that goodbye bit one day Thank you to everybody who made this show possible. Christopher Whitby for his passionate introductions to the albums of McCluskey, music writer Sharia Moore for returning to the show again despite the technical difficulties that beset our ESG episode, and to Nick Taylor, whose My Teenage Band podcast is a real joy. I particularly recommend going all the way back to Season 1, Episode 1, in order to hear today's guest Sheree, along with past guest Fliss Kitson of the Nightingales, talking about their teenage band, the phenomenal Violet Violet. That's my teenage band. Go and check it out. Thanks also to my indefatigable co-host Ewan and to Jonathan Fisher for his glorious synthy theme tune. Embarking as we are on our third season, we've also decided to launch a Patreon, which you'll find at patreon.com tempfans. It offers several ways to support the show, from the smallest gesture through to fully-fledged season sponsorship. Me and Ewan wearing shirts with your branding on. Think about it. If that's not your thing, just leave us a review or give us a little nudge on social media. It all helps. See you again next week when we dive into Andrew Falkus' next band, Future of the Left. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and my band is better than your band. We've got more songs and a song convention. Sing it. <laughs>